So we're going to move on to chapter 3, and it actually is a seamless transition to chapter 3 from where we left off in Ezekiel chapter 2. So let's, uh, let's, let's start off where we left off last time um, and move into uh, chapter 3 with the same thought. Um, just as a side note, and I'm sure anybody, everybody here who certainly knows this is that, the chapters and the verses that demark Scripture were not there. Obviously, these were just letters or, or, or just uh, notations written on scrolls or papyrus or whatever whatever they happened to write on in those days. So these are, are, are mechanical means by men, which I think is good because it does help us index the Bible. But unfortunately, when you have these chapter breaks, it doesn't necessarily mean by any stretch of the imagination that there's always a thought break as, as in a book of a modern day book, right? So having said that, um, back <clears throat> we left off where uh, that in, in verse chapter 2, verse 9, where Ezekiel saying, Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which he unrolled for me. On both sides it were written, were written the words of lament and mourning and woe. Now, I just want to make clear something I, I said last time, just to give you some thought into this, that typically a scroll in those days was written only on one side, as far as I understand it. But this scroll was written on both sides. <laughs> and he makes that clear because it is a full writ of woe and lamentation. I mean, this scroll is written to its capacity with lamentation. So we see where this is coming from. So, um, it's a, and it, it, we also see that there's a lot of detailed message here, messaging in this. So Ezekiel is to figuratively, completely, and utterly consume this writing and make it a part of his very being. I mean, that's what happens when you eat something. You know, they say you are what you eat. Look at me. I'm an example. Don't laugh. But um, it is true. And, and obviously, and what's, what's special, I think, in Ezekiel's case is, is he really, and we're going to see it obviously a lot more, and you already know this, he's made to portray physically. He's not just writing to his people. He's going to portray physically, so he's going to really be what God is intending him to be physically, and this scroll is the beginning of it. So now we seamlessly move into chapter 3, which continues on this thought. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And he said to me, son of man, Ezekiel, eat what you find in this book. Let me just, sorry, I just got to start this application here so my screen doesn't blank out. Okay. He said to me, eat what you find in this book, eat this scroll, then go speak to the house of Israel. So God's preparing him, arming him with the words of God. Now see the metaphor here? He's armed with the full and written down word of God before he goes to prepare him to speak the truth, the written word that he's going to take to Israel. But so in verse 2, in chapter 3, so I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll that I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. You ever get that bloated feeling? It may be from a scroll you ate. Hi, Sue. <laughs> and not from the veal parmesan last night. But I, but I digress. <laughs> but I digress. Yeah, scroll. But I digress. So in verse 4, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man... Oh, so, oh, I got to go back. I'm sorry. This is the most important part. Sorry, I missed that. Verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, eat the scroll that I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it. Now, here's the punchline. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. 
dot, dot, dot. And then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. That's, that's chapter verse 4. So in eating this two-sided scroll, the words of God were sweet as honey to his mouth. But what happens after that? But let's look at the same experience that somebody else had. And if you want to turn there, or you can, I'll just read it. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. And we're going to see the same type of uh, mechanism that God uses to feed someone an important word um, into himself, into that person. So Revelation chapter 10 and verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, and this is during the tribulation judgments, right? Um, In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Chapter 10 and verse 8. And the voice said, and the voice which I, John, of course, heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take this little book, scroll little book, same device, same thing, which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And verse 9. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. You see the simile here, right? And it shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. So we see what happened to Ezekiel also happens to John. So we see a mechanism that God uses here. In verse chapter in Revelation 10, verse 10, And I, John, took the, book, the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again before many people and nations and tongues and kings. So you see where Ezekiel was told to eat these words of God on a physical scroll and then, and then go to his people Israel. John in the book of Revelation is told to prophesy among many people and nations and tongues and kings, but the mechanism or the simile is there. So John and Ezekiel had very hard words to bring to their people, and they both tasted of the bitterness as they ran their prescribed course to the people of either a very rebellious nation or a very very rebellious world of people. Now going back to Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness. Okay, so you see, it's the same thing. He's now bitter because he's got this word. In the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Now in verse 15, Then I came to them to the captivity of Tel Abib. By the way, Tel Abib, history holds, is where Ezekiel lived. So he goes back to, he's brought back to his house. So then I was basically saying, I was, I was lifted up in the spirit and taken away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. And I'm just remember those words for a second there. We're going to talk about them. But he says, but then I came to the captivity at Tel Abib, where his house was, history holds that, that dwelt by the river of Kibar, again, back by this river of Kibar. And I sat there and remained there at his house, astonished among his people, for seven days. Now think of this if this were you or me. I mean, it would probably take me a lot more than seven days to recover from seeing that vision that we talked about, the portable throne room of God, then having to eat this bitter scroll, a two-sided scroll of the words of God. 
and having to gone through this and then being delivered back to my home and saying, okay, sit and think about this and chew on this for a while. That's hard. <laughs> and seven, by the way, we know in Scripture, it's not an accident. We know this, right? When number is used in Scripture, it's by no means an accident. What it means is it is a sign that, um, sorry, it, number seven is the sign of completeness. And so it's a complete judgment. And that's what makes this more poignant. Seven days he considered this. All right. Now, I'm just going to read from Ezekiel, so you can say where you are. Ezekiel chapter 5, verses... I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. You can stay in Ezekiel. And here's one more confirmation that the scroll, when used in the context of Scripture, denotes the very words of God. Just because it's there, I'm going to say it. So Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Um. This is Zechariah speaking. Now, then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll or a flying scroll. Okay? And he said unto me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying roll or a flying scroll or a flying book. The length, now listen to this, the length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. Now, I'm going to give you the measurements in a second in feet. But think of this. That is a huge scroll. So now we have the, the, the simile here, right, of Ezekiel's scroll, which is written on both sides of his lawn. But now Zechariah is seeing a huge flying scroll, and it is really huge. Okay, so let's continue. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 3. Then said he unto me, what, well, this is what this is, right? This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. Hmm. For everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So this again seems like it's a two-sided scroll, but it is huge. In chapter 5 of Zechariah verse 4, I will bring it forth, says the Lord of hosts. And remember, God says about his word, whether it's in the Bibles we hold or on these, not metaphoric, but no, they are metaphoric, but... On the scrolls, whether they're the real scrolls or scrolls he's using in these instances, his word never comes back void. That's the first thing we know, right? Or maybe the second thing we know. The first thing we know is that there is only one thing God holds higher than his own name, and that is his word. So this is how important whenever he says, I'm stating my word and I'm going to make you eat it and devour it, and here is a flying scroll with the judgments and it's going to be affecting the whole earth, so he says again, I will bring it forth, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and it shall consume and, and, and shall consume it, the house, with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. So the whole house will be consumed by the word of God for these people who disobey and are called by the word of God. So let's take a look at this big scroll in Zechariah as the primary example here, illuminating the scroll that Ezekiel had to eat, the two-sided scroll, and also the, Zeke, the scroll that John ate in Revelation. So there's this thing called the short cubit and the long cubit. So we can never be exact in these measurements, right? So we're going to say typically from what I've heard and what I've seen, whenever somebody tries to figure out like how long was no... Yes? No, he's just saying it's the... Oh, yeah. It's, I thought he was raising his hand, but it's the, it's the length from a man's elbow to the tips of his middle finger, right? The longest finger. 
Yeah, right, about 18. And, and, that, and so you're right. So the short cubic is between 16 and 18 inches. The long cubic could be around 20 inches, depending on the size of a man. So they didn't have... Well, there's Goliath. Or, or there's Goliath, right. Because Goliath, well, how tall was Goliath? We think he was probably about 15 feet tall. So the cubit for, for, for his race of people was huge. So you're right. So, But the long cubit, then we have to just put a stake in the ground and say, this is, this is what we're going to say it is, right? Um, so if we look at the long cubit, we're talking about 20 inches. The short cubit was about, as you were saying, about 18 inches. So again, there's this range there. So using the long cubit as the measurement of Zechariah's scroll, the 20-inch uh, benchmark, if you will, the, the median, um, it would measure about 33 feet by 17 feet. So here's a 17-foot scroll. I mean, you can't see it on the camera there, but I mean, my, my, my wingspan here is about my height, which is pretty short. So think of 17 feet wide by 33 feet long, and this scroll is flying with judgments for the whole earth. And it's going to fly into the houses of those who steal and those who use God's name in vain. I mean, we're talking major judgment. And I believe, obviously, if you look at the context of Zechariah, which we're not going to do here yet when we get to that book, but it is talking about really end times prophecy. It's, it's a big deal. So let's go back anyway with that amazing fact to Ezekiel 3. Uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So now we're going to go back to the context of this scroll at Ezekiel 8, this two-sided scroll. Hopefully it wasn't that big. I don't think it was that big because it would have really filled his belly up. But <laughs> he said in, in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 5, for you are not sent, you are not, now that's the operative word, you are not sent to a people of a strange language. They understand your speech. You understand their speech. And first, and, and also, it also means here uh, the um, culture, right? You're talking to your own people, basically. You're talking to those of your own family, of your own kin here. So he says, For you are not sent to a people of strange language and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. He's making it clear you're going to tell these people things that, and they are your people. So they're going to have a context of what you're telling them. They're not going to be strange. It's not going to be people who don't even know, you know, like an Italian going to uh, pretty much anybody else, right? An Israeli going to a Gentile. You know, like one's not going to, they're going to have, going to have a hard time convincing that person of what he's talking about. He's making it clear these people are your people, and you have everything in common. There should be nothing, no problem communicating here. But he's going to, he's still, then he qualified, that's a qualifier to say in verse 6, but not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language whose words you cannot, they cannot, you cannot understand. Surely, now listen to this, surely had I sent thee to them, the people who are of a different language, who are of a different culture, Allah, the Gentiles, they would have hearkened unto you. You see what he's saying? That the, his own people are going to be so stubborn that people who wouldn't even be able to understand what he's talking about would find it easier to, to obey and listen to Ezekiel. He's preparing Ezekiel. This is going to be the hardest thing that you could ever be assigned to do. But by the way, later... This did happen, didn't it? God did eventually send, quote-unquote, to them, quote-unquote, and they did hearken. And who are these that I'm talking about? It's us, right? It's us. Because let's face it, everyone, well, there's not that many people here, but everyone in this room and on Skype 
had no clue of Israel, had no clue of the Old Testament, had no clue of anything, anything, and neither did you, and I knew you for a long time, Jesse, so you definitely didn't have a clue, and neither did I. So, but yet, when you were given the truth and God enlightened you because he was calling you and me and all of us, man, we, we accepted it, and yet we were people of a strange and a hard language and a different culture. So that's really important. So let's move to, um, to verse 7 in chapter 3 of Ezekiel. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto you. So I'm just warning you, Ezekiel, this is not going to be easy at all. It's going to be the very, very difficult. For they will not hearken, will not hearken unto me. <laughs> For all the house of Israel are impudent or impudent and hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. And I'm just warning you, Ezekiel, it's not that he didn't know that. You're right. That's right. And by the way, Ezekiel's going to show that to them, right? And that's going to be, you're right. And that's the hardest part for Ezekiel because he's going to kind of act all this stuff out. It's like, how did he? they get to where they are? <laughs> it's going to be shown to them. Verse 8, Behold, I have made you your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. You've heard of the term butting heads? This is what he's setting Ezekiel up to do. It's like, Ezekiel, I can just imagine with his belly bitter eating that scroll and then hearing all of this, they're not going to accept the hard words. You're, you're going to be persecuted and you're still going to be expected to go against them head for head and toe to, head to, head and toe, to toe. Um, verse 9. As an adamant harder than flint have I made your forehead. So God's saying, I'm preparing you with a steely forehead. So fear them not. Neither be dismayed by their looks, although they be a rebellious house. Moreover, he said unto me, son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto you. Now listen to this. Not only hear with your ears, but receive them in your heart. And it seems strongly to me, just as it is for us, to hear the word of the Lord is one thing, but to be prepared to do his will, especially when it's under adversity, we better have this word hidden in our heart, right? Because we're not going to be called to what Ezekiel is called to, but we may be called to some very hard tasks. And especially among us, we see in a church as we go to, right? There are a lot of people who really don't, just like Israel, they have hardened hearts. They think they have a religion or they think they're doing this. But when it comes to being telling them what's happening or when things start to break loose in whatever way possible, whatever way it might happen, and you start telling them what's going on, be prepared. Be prepared. So receive it in your heart and then you'll be prepared to be sent. That's what he's basically telling Ezekiel. You have to really eat and live and breathe this stuff and eat it like that scroll and it's got to be in your heart. Verse 11, and go. Get thee to them of the captivity, his people in Babylon, unto the children of your people, and speak unto them, and tell them, Thus saith the Lord. So you tell them under authority that what you're giving them is the word of God. And, by the way, Ezekiel, just because you say that doesn't mean they're going to hear it. So whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, you basically have to do that. So now, here, it seems that Ezekiel gets another amazing chariot ride. Actually, he gets, he gets the amazing chariot ride because he's going to see, just, just listen to this. <laughs> and this is, this is the point I wanted you to remember before uh, when I read chapter, uh, verse 14 before. But listen to this, read this. So now he's, he's set. He's going to be ready to be dispatched by God. Let's go through Ezekiel 3, 12 through 14. 
Then the Spirit took me up. Now he's prepared, right? So he's being taken up. And now listen, just think of this. Remember when we were talking about the portable throne and the noises it was making? Sound To us, it may be like modern day thrusters or something like that. But to him, he was describing it as chanting, holy, holy, holy. That's what I'm just saying. In the expressions of his time and his day, he had to express it in the best way he could. So thinking of that, let's read what he says here and think of what he really might mean. Then the, excuse me, then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me, maybe it's a rear-engine vehicle, I don't know, <laughs> behind me a voice of a great rushing. Like, can you imagine, like, when you're taking off in a jet, it sounds like a voice of a great rushing, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> right? Thinking, Vladimir Putin, a great Russian. Oh, a Russian, a great... <laughs> Come on, we are going to go. <laughs> I am vice president in charge of production, powered-up engine. A great Russian, a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. Now, was somebody or angels literally saying that, or was it such an impression of of majesty that that's what it sounded like? Because I'm just going to throw this out there. I know that when, and I've flown like you have many times, okay, but when you're in that jet and it taxis, that's one thing, but when those engines spool up, and you feel the power being pushed back into that seat, and you look at all the humanity and the weight in that thing, you're just amazed. I still am amazed at the power that those engines have, and the right and the thrust. So, to me, that that is sort of an not overwhelming, but I want to say it's a it's it's sort of like could that power that God has behind that be equated to Ezekiel because he's not used to being in that situation where there's so much power around him just glorifying the Lord even more and he's making that a metaphor. Does that make sense? Just saying, because we've got to think of it that way. Because he said he heard a great rushing, blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place, moving somewhere else possibly. Verse 13, I heard also the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another. Remember the description in chapter 1. And the noise of the wheels over against them and a noise of a great rushing. So it sounds like this thing is starting to have some kind of movement and it's spooling up whatever it does to move. Verse 14, so listen to this. So after now, this whole thing is happening around him. This thing is spooling up. It's overwhelming in its thrust and its power, however it's working. And so he says, and so the Spirit lifts me up, right? and took me away it's almost like he's taking off now this thing is fully spooled up and it's ready and i went in bitterness because of all he was just told in that scroll like we said before but listen to this and in the heat of my spirit but the hand of the lord was strong upon me now to me that sounds a little out of context and i'm only speculating here so i just want you to think about metaphor okay Considering the context of this of being taken up in this thing with the rushing of this this power, however it's driving him because it's being moved and he's in this device or whatever this is, this portable throne, wouldn't it be too far fetched to hold the possibility that the statement, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me, could it be Ezekiel's way of saying that he felt the pressure of G forces in this dispensation as he was being accelerated? Like I said, when I'm on a plane or you're on a plane, right, and that plane takes off, you feel the pressure of G-forces, and that's not even a half G. 
but you feel it and the power that it takes to press you back into that seat to move tons and tons and tons of cargo and people and everything at a thrust enough to make that thing take off that's power and that's what i'm saying he's feeling here i would imagine if you could take ezekiel to the present day and put him in a in a, in a powerful like f-15 or, or or f-16 or whatever f-35 the newest jet he would probably be in such awe it would be so much like the same experience that he's trying to equate there okay anyway just it could have been, but I'm saying the description is very graphic, and to me, it sounds like, yeah, it could be. It could be nothing more than that, but what I'm saying is a lot of times we have to look at Scripture, and I, I, and that's a good, a good point that I, you just raised in my mind. I want to make it clear that I'm not dogmatic about these things, but what I am saying is that God does not put these things in here in such graphic language for nothing. And and if you look at this and you look at a scroll and, and the words and eating a scroll or you look at this and other descriptions about interlopers, like when heavenly angels come into this interlope into this dimension, like when Christ, we see shimmering robes and, and flames in his eyes now. Maybe he does have flaming eyes or maybe he doesn't. In this dispensation, the power that radiates from a being that that, that is moving in other dimensions coming here the way it seems to work in physics is that higher dimensions are simply higher vibration levels in the activity of atoms. And you think... In verse in chapter 1, you know, that strange wheel-like thing. Right. With the four... With the eyes. Faces, four eyes. Four eyes and things, right. Yeah. So we don't know what that is. What? Yes. Well, my Bible has a reference in Second Kings 3.15. Uh-huh. And it says talking about Elisha and stuff, but it says here, um, but now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Yeah. So there wasn't any wheels and things. It was just... Right. It doesn't mean every instance of that means that, but, but he says, and the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. It seems like out of place in, it, for that meaning in this context. That's all I'm saying. Because the land, the hand of the Lord was strong upon him anyway. I mean, look at what God just did with him. Look at what he told him to do. Look at how he prepared him. That's a pretty strong hand of the Lord. But now it's in the context of this thing with all of these sounds and all of this magnificent power. And then he says, and in the midst of this, all of a sudden, and I was taken up in the spirit, and the Lord's hand was strong upon me. I'm just saying, we can be dogmatic about it. Can't be that at all, which some people want to be. And we can be dogmatic that it has to be that. And I think you're wrong on both ends of the spectrum. I think if you look at the context, in that context, it really means that the hand of the Lord was strong upon him. The Holy Spirit, like you can be, any of us can have a strong Holy Spirit, God's hand upon us when he wants us to know something. Like have you ever, I'm not going to ask for examples, but have you ever been in the midst of sin? And feeling guilty, but you're not stopping, or you're, or you're procrastinating, you're bringing it to the Lord. And eventually you feel a heaviness that you've got to make this right with God. To me, I would say that's the Lord's hand is heavy upon me, which has nothing to do with this context. Right? So, just saying. That's just, that's just again, my point of view, and I'm going to say it because this is what I think, and people can be dogmatic one way or the other, and I'm just saying I'm not going to be dogmatic about things that 
seem to be written for us to understand. But anyway, I digress, and here we go. So, and then in verse 15, after being moved with the strong hand of the Lord and this thing, this, this taken up in the spirit and this thing, then I came to the captivity, like I read before, of Tel Aviv, where he lived. He was brought back, and then he dealt there, dwelt there in, with seven days to sit on all of that just happened to him. So after dropping Ezekiel off, where he lived in that town, God gives him seven days to absorb and deeply ponder what had just, he just encountered and what he was charged directly by God to do. So now he's got to internalize this. Remember, God said to him, bring this into your heart, Ezekiel. And I think it takes time. Personally, I think that's what this was. But notice that the details of what happened now, um, of what of what and how had... Let me, back, let me backtrack. I'm tripping over my tongue here. Notice that the details of what and how had not yet been revealed. He's been sent, right? We know that he's been given an assignment. And it's not that sweet. And he told them that they're not going to listen to you. But you're going to say, thus saith the Lord. But he hasn't really been given everything. And he certainly doesn't know yet, which we're going to find out, how he's supposed to deliver this message. It's not, like I said before, and you already know, it's not the usual, I'm going to write a scroll, I'm going to deliver it to somebody, and they're going to read it among the people, and they're going to try to stone me. That's bad enough. He's going to start doing some play acting here. It's going to be a little different for him. So verse 16 in chapter 3, let's continue. And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, Ezekiel, I have made you... Now, listen to this term, because we're going to parse this term a little bit, especially for today, because a lot of people call themselves by this term. I have made you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore... Hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. So we see the first defining of this, what I'm going to say is a job description or a role. What is a watchman? So first and foremost, it seems here, the definition, a watchman is to hear the words of God as directly from his mouth and then give them as warning. Okay. He is not, then, by extension, to as we understand what Ezekiel was just told. So he is not to add or take away, nor is he to personally interpret these words, thus saith the Lord. He is to speak in the full power and authority of God's as God's assigned proxy. So this is almost like power of attorney, if you will. And this is a very, very important thing because there are plenty of people who call themselves watchmen today by they're all over the place i'm a watchman i'm a watchman on the wall great what does that mean well we also have a lot of false prophets and false teachers and things and so they're all watchmen too but let's continue with the job description because we know now what the basics of a watchman is first to define that he must hear the words of god from directly from god's as if from god's mouth or directly from his word which is his mouth in those days and then give warning he's not to add or take away or personally interpret. By the way, aren't we warned about that in Scripture throughout? What happens, like even from the book of Revelation directly, right? But we know in other places in Scripture that there's a curse for anyone who, who takes away, and their curse is added to those who add to the Scripture. So this is just amplifying this, but particularly when you're talking about prophecy and you're delivering a word of woe, 
And remember in the book of Isaiah, when God had said that there are prophets who said, uh, was it Isaiah? I think it was Isaiah. And he said that there are false prophets who are, was it, was it Jeremiah? I, I think it was Jeremiah. Yeah, because of the beginning of captivity. When he said that there are people who are going to come and they're going to say, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, it was, it was Jeremiah. Don't worry about it because the captivity won't last that long. It was Jeremiah. Anyway, so let's go to chapter 3 and verse 18. So when I say, this is God now continuing the thought of the assignment as Ezekiel as a watchman. When I say unto the wicked, you shall surely die. Now that's a hard thing to say to somebody. When God says, go tell these people, you shall surely die. And you give him not the warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. By the way, this applies to the church today, doesn't it? We've got to be very careful. Because the gospel is a good thing. But what is the need of the gospel if there's no such thing as judgment for those who do not accept Christ, who blaspheme the Holy Spirit? We have to talk about hell as much as we talk about heaven. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus talked more about hell than heaven. And Jesus is the primary watchman, right, to us. He's, as a matter of fact, it says in Scripture, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But I digress. So if you do not speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, so there'll be no recourse. Just because you didn't tell him doesn't mean he's not going to be judged and, and die. But his blood will re I will require at your hand, watchman. It's a very serious thing to be a watchman. Verse 19. Yet if you warn the wicked and he turns not from his wicked ways, it means if he doesn't decides not to hear, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your own soul. Okay? So you see, what he's telling Ezekiel obviously applies to us verbatim. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man does turn from his righteousness, and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not given him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, will, will, which we have done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. So how does that apply to us in the church today? We can be in our church as watchmen as well. That if we see someone who is saved in Christ and they're living in sin, so it's saying, and they're basically devouring their own righteousness, and we don't warn him, his righteousness will not even be remembered. He he, if he's living in sin, but and his, and he will die. And if you don't warn him, if you don't go to your brother and warn him, your blood I will require at your hand. Verse twenty-one. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man, which we can apply to the church that the righteous is that the righteous sin not and that he doth not sin he shall surely live so if you warn him don't sin this is sin don't do it and he doesn't do it he shall surely live but because he is warned you also have delivered your his soul you see the import of this okay so this is, should sound familiar to us especially in this age of grace because this is the age really where God's mercy meets God's grace. You know, mercy and grace are two separate things. I don't know if you realize that, right? Having mercy, let's say on a child that does wrong, okay? Having mercy may say, I won't spank you because you deserve it, but I'll, I'll give you mercy, okay? But then having grace says, I'll also, because I love you, give you a cookie. 
it's a, maybe not a, not a, you get my drift. It may not be the just thing that came to the top of mind. Not that, not that you're reinforcing the wrong, but what I'm saying is it's like sort of this, how about this is maybe even better. When you, when you spank a child for, for doing wrong, okay, punishing him, okay, maybe not doing that is showing mercy. I'll let you get away with it this time. That's showing mercy. But when someone gets something that they don't deserve, that's grace. So you see, that's why there's this difference between mercy and grace. Does that make sense? And the Bible is full of that. So withholding judgment is mercy, but giving blessing is grace. And we deserve neither, but that's the difference, okay? So I hope it sounds familiar, and these are the rules of engagement now that Ezekiel has given. And by extension, God does not change. His word does not change. The way he operates, his modus operandi does not change. So by extension, all these things are things for us as well. Verse 20. Uh, Verse 22 in Ezekiel chapter 3. So when the hand of the Lord was upon me, now again, this is probably that other first kings or second kings type of hand of the Lord. Um, what he means here, the hand of the Lord was pressing, because you can see the discussion God's having with him. This is a heavy discussion. So this is probably not G forces. The context here is saying, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he said unto me, Arise, watchman. I just gave you the real facts of a watchman. Now you are held responsible for your own blood and possibly the blood of others as well, okay? So now that you have this assignment and you've eaten this two-sided scroll which has judgment to your own people, which are going to reject you, I'm telling you in advance, this is going to be a hard thing, and that's a hard hand. He was in his bitterness. That's the hand of the Lord upon him. Arise, now that you're ready and armed and locked and loaded, arise, go forth into the plain, and I will talk with thee there. Now he's going to get his final instruction, and he's going to be dispatched. You're locked and loaded. Get your stuff. Get out from your house in Tel Aviv, which is almost like a Tel Aviv, isn't it? <laughs> Tel Aviv. Tel means mountain, by the way. So, But anyway, that's... I, I, this is Babylon. Yeah, it's Babylon, but they still kind of had... This. And I was wondering about that, because it is Babylon, but Tel, could it have been Tel Aviv? A mountain of, Bab mountain of Abib or something? Yeah, in Hebrew, but this is Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I knew a guy named Gil Arbel, and he was an Israeli. This guy was big as a mountain. He was mean as one, too. But, and he was my boss. He actually laid me off because he didn't like me. But that's another side. That's another story. I'll never climb that mountain again. But Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 22. <laughs> and the hand, okay, I read that. So uh, verse 23. Then I arose. Now he's, he's called to go to the plain, and God's going to meet him there. Then I arose and went forth into the plain. So at least he's good. He's obedient. And behold, the glory of the Lord stood there. As the glory, now listen to this, here's the qualifier. I went to the plain, so he wants to get him away from the people out into by himself in the wilderness. And he goes there and he says, Behold, I saw the glory of the Lord as the glory which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. Would you say he's probably encountering this thing again? This, this miraculous, or not miraculous, but this glorious uh, presentation of God again, that you just are falling to your feet, that's what it sounds like. The description is clear in this, that Ezekiel is again seeing God in this glorious and stunning mode of sitting high on his throne, in this portable throne or his chariot of indescribable, and I'm going to add the word, interdimensional glory and power, something that is foreign to us here, but Ezekiel's encountering this. So he's encountering it again in the plains. So now... It is now that Ezekiel is placed into actual service, and this is where we start seeing God dispatch him. But I hope I, I, 
I made it clear here because I needed to make it clear to myself. You know, a lot of us know the story of Ezekiel. We, and what we're going to get into starting now is the, the real heavy-duty things that he did. And, and moving forward, the prophecies of the future as we go. But look at the preparation. Look at the, look at the force of God's preparation. Look at the, the hard learning. Look at the, how, he, how he presented himself to Ezekiel in power and glory and then grabbing him and bringing him to places in this chariot and it, it, I'm going to call it a chariot but it's amazing that and then he makes him sit for seven days and ponder the glory of God that he encountered you know John kind of went through the same kind of thing right a couple of times and when he was on the Isle of Patmos he saw the glorified Christ It'd be these kind of things before they're dispatched on their mission is, is something to behold. And, and I just wonder because rarely I think does anybody today see these kind of things from God. And this is a sensation of grace. We don't see these kind of movements of God. And we indeed don't have to because God lives in us. So his word is sufficient. We don't have to see these things. And I'm not saying there are people who don't see miracles like this. But anyway, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes here. So now he's being placed, he's in the plane. He's now encountering God in this glorious mode again, again. He's false to his face and then he continues in verse 24 in chapter 3. Then the Spirit entered me and set me upon my feet. So now he's off his face and he's on his feet. He's strong and he's, he's straightened up. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks with him and says to me, Go shut yourself in your house. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> I'm going back to Tel Aviv, huh? Go to your room. Yeah, go to your room. Go to your house. But you, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon you. They're going to restrain you in your house. They shall bind you with them, and you shall no, no longer or not go out among them. It's like, I'm poor Ezekiel. It's like, you just armed me. You just said, I'm going to these people in this glory. And now you're going to say, go back to your house and get bound up inside it like a shut-in? And, and further, in verse 26... And I will make your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth that you shall not eat, that you shall be dumb. You won't even be able to speak. You shall not even be able to be the reprover to them, which is what you, I just told you I was going to send you to do. You see, imagine if you were Ezekiel. And by the way, again, a lesson for us today. How can we second guess God? When he, you, you think at the one moment he's preparing you for something, you think he's sending you for something, you feel he's going to do something and all of a sudden nothing happens. Or worse, the opposite happens. You get hurt. Now, let me give you, I'm going to close with this thought because I think this is really important. We talked about the dispensation of the church, okay? And we, we talked about how the 1800s really started forming, and it's not just my opinion, if you look at history, really started forming, forming the very end time thrust of getting Israel, the land ready for Israel to return and all of these end time things, right? Okay, and, and we know that. So, when it was um, John Nelson Darby, who was one of the, the Plymouth Brethren who with, with the dispensationalism, okay, he actually was ill, and I think it was because his knee got damaged or something in a, a riding accident or something like that. He was actually bedridden, and it was then that he said that he actually took the time, because he couldn't really do anything else on the sideline, to read Isaiah, and I believe it was 28, which really started giving him the idea that in dispensationalism, and it was time to start really bringing back to the fore prophecy and Israel being restored, right? 
And then, and then you know, the rest of it, he was, I think, involved with Schofield and the others who after him. But then he was part of the Plymouth Brethren after he was healed, and he was sent out, and he traveled. Matter of fact, he, as I understand it, he, he translated the, the New and the Old Testament from one language to English, I think, from French to English or something like that. And then he translated to, into two languages, and, and from English to two languages, I forget, but whatever it was. He did a lot of work translating scripture. He also had a, the, Darby, the Darby translation of the New Testament in English. That's what it was. But having said that, if you look at the big picture here, sometimes God prepares you for something big, right? And then he puts you on the sideline for a while. Now, I know that in my life. He's done that to me one big time. And my major concern when this happened a long time ago to me now is I was so on fire because I was learning and I was growing and I couldn't believe the truth I was learning. And, and here I am and God makes it, uh, it makes it seem that I'm going to be put on the shelf. And I'm thinking this is going to be punishment. And my deepest fear at the time was that I was no longer worthy, quote-unquote, not that anybody's worthy, but I was no longer going to be used by God because in my erroneous thought, I had done something so egregious or so wrong or had some unrepented sin, which I don't even know what it was, that I was no longer going to be used and I was going to be put on the shelf. That was my biggest fear. So I'm just saying, think of these things and look at how he's treating Ezekiel after that marvelous in induction to work. And then he's going to be saying, put on the sidelines in his home. And then he's going to be bound up and he's not going to be able to speak. It's like, you just disarmed everything off of me that you gave me. It's like, well, how am I supposed to do what you're going to do? And God's probably not even just saying, wait. <laughs> he's probably not saying anything at that point. So when we pick up next time, we're going to see really the amazing things that he has done with Ezekiel. So, um, I mean, we can stop there. We still have, well, about, what, 15 minutes or so? If you want to continue a little longer, I. We'll go a okay, we'll go a little longer? All right, because there's more. We're going to get into the thick of this a little bit. All right, so we'll, we'll go for another 10 minutes. But wait, there's more. Say what? <laughs> I have a, oh, I don't, oh, I have a, an iPhone thingy here, but I don't have a, okay. I'll give you a physical Bible. How's that? A scroll you can eat. How about? Okay, so we'll continue a little bit. <laughs> so, so verse 26, and I will make your tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth that you shall be dumb or can't talk, and, just to make sure we understand that, and shall not be to them a reprover for they are a rebellious house. So it's almost like a, an additional cursing to Israel that he's got this guy ready for them and he's not going to tell him yet, his watchman. So, the, but the ability to rebuke them is going to come a little later and with greater force. Because watch what Ezekiel is going to have to start doing. We're going to see that as we go. So verse 27. But when I speak to thee, I will open your mouth. And you shall say unto them, thus saith the Lord. So now at least he knows at some point later, God's going to still use me. He's prepared me for this. He that hears, let him hear. And he that forbears, let him forbear. For they are a rebellious house. Now we're going to move to chapter 4, where we begin to see the dispatch of Ezekiel into active service. So now he's gone through this time of being dumb and being bound or whatever. We're going to see how that works out. So Ezekiel is now not only sent to deal with Jerusalem and Judah, but to also prophesy against seven of the surrounding nations, Ammon, Moab, Edom, 
Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, Babylon, and Egypt. So you talk about a calling. Now you're not even going to just go to your people with, with, the, with the, your same speech and your same culture. Now you're going to go to some of seven of Israel's hardest enemies, and you're going to reprove them too. But first, he's to sign, he's to be a physical model, because remember, it hasn't happened yet. Remember, the, the captivity in Babylon happened in, in different stages, right? He's now, he's going to be first dispatched to be a physical model of the coming siege of Jerusalem, which is still, at that point in time, 11 years in the future. That's a long time. So he's going to do some hard things, which you're going to see right here, to model this coming siege of Jerusalem, which is going to be awful. Now, remember when we looked at the book of Lamentations and, and uh, Jeremiah? we saw how lamenting it was because it was hard. This is what he's, he's prophesying now for Jerusalem. But it's 11 years later. So chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read from the Amplified Version in this one. Now you, son of man, take a brick. Some say take a tile in some translations. But we're going to, there's, a, there's a, a, an important thing, not important, but it's, it's, a, it's a key point I want you to think about when it says, why is he making him take a brick? Why doesn't he say take a scroll? Or take a piece of wood, you know? Like they didn't write on brick. They didn't do things on brick too many times. But just hold that in your mind and you'll, it'll become clear. Because remember, they're in Babylon. It wouldn't hurt as much. It wouldn't hurt as much, right? And hit him with a brick. <laughs> now you, son, take a brick and slap it across their head. No, place it before you and inscribe on it a diagram of the city of Jerusalem. So now think of this physically. He's got to take a brick and somehow scribe into the material of the brick, the, 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 bake, the bacon clay, a, a map of Jerusalem. This is kind of strange, right? But think of it. Well, my translation says a clay tablet. makes a lot of sense in Babylon. Well, but a brick makes a lot of sense, too. <laughs> because, because, and that's what I'm saying. Some say the tile may say, but what, what uh, translation are you using? This is NIV. Yeah, so NIV... Honestly, I, I take I gotta watch with sometimes because I've seen where verses are missing in the NIV and others too. But but think of it. So think of it. I, I'm gonna make look. It, I'm not gonna be dogmatic about this either. But it does say a brick, and I'm gonna give you why it's a brick. But just we'll continue. You'll see what I mean. So we'll take take a brick or a tile or or what did you say it was in yours again? Clay tablet. A clay tablet. Like wrote on yeah, but but. But think of the import of what a brick is versus a tablet. I'll tell you something now. A brick is, unlike a tablet, a tablet is used to record words and to record thought for like pages in a book. But a brick is not used for that, nor is a tile. Typically, these are construction items, right? A brick is to build a building. A brick is... Is, or a tile can be used to also build as in finished work or something like that. So there is that difference. Just keep that in mind, and that's why that's why I'm going where I'm going with this. Okay. So take this device, let's call it a brick, place it before you and inscribe it on a diagram of the city of Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it. Build a siege wall. So, you, so this is now probably going to be a three-dimensional thing, which doesn't say a scroll, right? Because think about what he's doing here. He's got a physical three-dimensional object. He's, it's sort of like a foundation with a city on it, like a plot of land, okay? And it's a diorama, basically. If you remember what a diorama is, raise, and, and, and then 
after you build this replica or inscribe this replica on this diorama, if you want to call it that, raise, build a siege wall against it, raise a ramp against it, set up, an, set up enemy camps around it, and place battering rams all around it. So that's why it's probably not any kind of a scroll. This is a building. This is a city built something. That's what I'm saying. Verse 3, further, take an iron plate and place it as an iron wall between you and that city on that brick or thing that you built it on, and then set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. This is a sign to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel is told to construct the small model city of Jer the small model of Jerusalem and now siege it and come against it. You get the developing picture here, right? Now, the brick or the tile, or in your case, the NIV, the scroll, but Ezekiel oh, used scroll, a, clay a clay tablet. I'm sorry. Big difference. Big difference. But it's still not a... Yeah, you're right. But it's still not a building material. And here's what I'm saying. Ezekiel uses probably... And this is what other commentaries say too. And so I'm, I'm building a thought here because if you look at the context again, Ezekiel used a, what would probably a standard brick, which was available in Babylon because it was there, used in construction and was probably of the type typically used in Babylon in those days. It was also probably larger than the standard bricks we see today. Okay? But remember, and this is my point, this is the, this is the fulcrum of what I'm saying here. What was made clear in the beginning of the Babylonian system, which started with the man named... Who? Nebuchadnezzar. Before that. This is Nebuchadnezzar now. I'm talking about the very beginning of, oh. of the Babylonian system. Nimrod. Right after the flood. Nimrod, Nimrod. Right? He founded Babel. He also founded Nineveh and Sodom and other cities which were evil. But remember the key point. It was in Babel and nothing was going... Because they called it the plains of Shinar in those days. Right? But, they, but the specifically, Babel comes into the picture for, for posterity and all eternity here. Because Nimrod creates a system of religion and government. But what's the main thing he does? He builds a tower. And they make it clear. What was that tower built with? Bricks and mortar. Why would they mention bricks and mortar? We've talked about this before. Because it was technology. Think about, like, you build stuff, Jesse, and you build stuff, right, Lawrence? And I build stuff, and maybe some of us other build stuff. And when you go build stuff, well, you try to build stuff. <laughs> but when you do build stuff, you know it today, it's pretty easy, relatively speaking, because everything is made dimensionally to fit, right? So when I buy a two by four, I know what I'm getting. I know that I can take measurements of what I need to build. I can get two by four trim, two by four studs. I can get devices and windows that like if I'm going to install a faucet I know that the holes for the faucet in the sink are going to be the right space to fit a faucet I can buy from a totally different manufacturer but I know it's going to fit because everything is called standardized right when you build with stones there is no standardization when you build with brick it's repeatable it's scalable it's standardized you can make them in quantity and you can you can architect something much more efficiently when you build with brick. And then mortar, which is a very good substance to put them together so that the thing stands. Does that make sense? So this is, a, this is, this is alluding to strongly to technology 
And if you roll forward, Babylon by this time is so highly developed that Neb- and under Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, which was a very wise, and God gave him all of these things, right? Very wise king. They had all of this from Babylon. They had a lot of practice in technology. They had a lot of practice in efficient buildings. And they had, they had all these things. So what I'm saying to you is, yes, the, the, the tablets were written on, but they, this is more of a foundation of a city. And the brick also symbolizes Babylon coming against this thing. Does that make sense? That's why I look at it this way. And that's just me. Anyway, so uh, let's see. So it's, it, it was safe to say that the reason... We're going to stop right after I read this next set of passages. So continuing in verse 4, now we're going to see the second sign of Ezekiel to his people. Now you see the first one, which is hard enough. He makes that diorama. He builds sieges against it. It's a brick. It's this, whatever it is. It's now a city. And it's like, what is this guy doing? I can imagine the people around him. It's like, who knows how the society functioned in that day? But it's kind of weird. So then he's told to do this. Then lie down in verse 4. Then lie down on your left side toward the north, toward the north, to bear symbolically the wickedness and punishment of the house of Israel. That's the first part. You shall bear their wickedness and punishment for the number of days that you lie on your side. Now again, he didn't have to do this 24 hours. He did this during the day so they could see it. For I have assigned you the years of their wickedness and their punishment. So think of what he's doing here. He's witnessing to them by lying on his side years of something coming. According to the number of the days, 390 days representing 390 years, in this way you shall bear symbolically the wickedness and punishment of the house of Israel lying on your side. When you have completed these days for Israel, lie down again but this time on your right side toward the south. Now remember, in the divided kingdom, Israel was the northern kingdom, right? And Judah was the southern kingdom. So now he's showing judgment to both the house of Israel, by the way, which had already gotten sacked by Assyria, right? But now Judah is now going to be sieged. And this is the big deal because Judah is still there. And now this is what Nebuchadnezzar is going to be finally uh, taking. And you shall bear the wickedness and the punishment of the house of Judah 40 days. I have assigned you one day for each year, just like he did when he was lying to the north for Israel. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophecy against it. Now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. Now, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to explain very briefly here that this is a difficult thing to calculate. And I've looked it up. It's very difficult to calculate because by lying on his left side for for, for 390 days, again, not continuing with daily, but 390 days, each day being for a year, okay, and then on his right side for 40 more days facing Judah or the south, Ezekiel represents one day for each year of the previous centuries of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah's grave spiritual error, especially as they were divided since the uh, since Jeroboam and all that stuff happened, right? Since Solomon and after that, because their spiritual error. As a consequence of God's people's idolatry and immorality, divine judgment is now at hand and about to take the form in the destruction of Jerusalem. So it it's also showing. Now remember, Israel the. Northern, the northern kingdom had already been taken captive years ago. So this is sort of a review. So I'm going to now wrap up the punishment in Jerusalem that's coming in 11 years from now. But this is a review of if Israel's 
the big siege there and also here. So it was difficult to nail down this time-based thing of how Ezekiel engaged as far as the history goes. So I looked at it, and I also looked at some commentaries, and it was difficult to find. So I'm going to wrap up with this. Um, Seventy of the years would seem to be easily accounted for in the Babylonian captivity. Okay, but that leaves 360 years. Because remember, it's a total of 430 years, north and south, facing north and south, minus the 70, which means 360 years. And they don't seem to any, fit any specific thing. But I did notice that if you count from the year 606 backward, okay, because 606 was the beginning of technically of the siege, right, of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar's taking of the Jews in captivity. You go back to around 1036, and this is what others have said, that's around the time when the divided kingdom was being really, really ready because of the massive sin. So that was around David's reign before Solomon in the end. But I'm going to read you a commentary from my favorite Bible, and then will be the, the end of this. So in my commentary, my favorite Bible, which is edited by Tim LaHaye and Dr. Thomas Ice, if you're familiar, familiar with them, but it also has contributors, the most famous of which were John Ankerberg, David Brees, which he's long past now, but he was one of my favorite pastors, Mal Couch, Jimmy DeYoung, and Ed Heidson. So these people contributed to the commentary in this particular Bible that I'm going to quote from. So here's the quote about this passage from my favorite, my personal favorite Bible. During the 430-year period between 1036 and 606 B.C., when the first of three groups of Jews were led away captive in 606, right? And remember, this is now foretelling the 11-year-later-on final captivity and sloshing of uh, taking of Jerusalem. The nation's history was marred by many evils, which the prophets, and we, we, we spoke about some of those prophets, denounced for all those years before. The 40-year period, especially for Judah, may indicate that the worst end of the worst time under Manasseh's reign prior to his repentance in 2 Chronicles 33. That's what that might mean. Nobody's really sure. But Ezekiel performed the symbolic act around the year 593 B.C., nearly five years after the second deportation of the Jews to Babylon, in which he was taken. He was taken in the second round, along with uh, King Je Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakin in 597. So there's also something else you've got to consider, too. And that's why this is, this is an undertaking that's difficult. We not only don't have any bookends, we don't have any solid events on each side other than the, 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 the Nebuchadnezzar's taking of the Jews and then Jerusalem. So we know that 606 is there. But we don't know anything from the beginning what he's really talking about. And also there are always these general calendar errors, right? And the fact that the Bible is based on a 360-day prophetic year. It is not based on the 365-day year that we use. So when you're looking at prophecy, you have to always fashion it against, like when you look at Daniel's prophecy about the 1260 days and all those things and the 70 weeks, you've got to time it on the 360-day prophetic year. If you do that, then you can come up with the exact calculations and we know that they're right because he predicted exactly when Messiah would show up. And if you do the calculations with the 360-day prophetic year, you get it. Here, it's difficult to do because we don't have two bookmarks. We don't have the, the bookmarks for each end. So that's just a sample. Maybe somebody knows it. I don't, but I think that's where we'll wrap up. <laughs> so. There were 40-year circumference. Yeah, yeah. You can't time anything. And you really can't tie that the first end of that thing in around 1036 B.C., you can't tie it to much, you know. And there's there's differences of opinion. So, did you just drop Jesse? Anyway, I'm wrapping this up. Talk to you next time.